Well, it's my privilege to introduce to you this evening my very good friend, Dr. David Arias. Dr. Arias and I go back quite a ways now, and so I asked the dean whether I might introduce him. I really couldn't resist the opportunity to talk about him in front of 400 people. <laughs> of course, partly I'm banking on the probability that, that our roles this evening will never be reversed. <clears throat> As many of you know, I've been organizing the St. Vincent de Paul Lecture Series for a couple of years now. Many people assume that, therefore, the people who actually end up speaking in this series were my idea. <clears throat> but this is not true more often than not. Yes, I am passing the buck. So Dr. Arius was not my idea. When last year I invited him to speak tonight, he looked at me in that quiet, grave manner for which he's so well known, and he said, Joe, what have you done? <laughs> to which I replied, hey, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> but David, I sure wish it had been. <clears throat> so again, I am very pleased to be introducing Dr. Arias to you tonight. I first met Dr. Arias here at Thomas Aquinas College in 1998 when we were both students here together. I enjoyed getting to know him then, but I was especially happy when I learned that once I had determined to go to the University of St. Thomas in Houston for my graduate studies, Mr. Arias had also applied in the same program and was planning to go the same year. While we were in the program in Houston, we became close friends. I learned some things about Mr. Arias in Houston. <laughs> Boy, that was dramatic. <laughs> First, <clears throat> he is a true disciple of the church and of St. Thomas Aquinas. And people like that are rarer than you might think. Consequently, he was a great example to me during my graduate studies. And for that, I'm enduringly grateful. Second, he's not afraid to stand up for the truth in public. In the program down there, we encountered, as you will in most graduate programs, some philosophical oddity and even a little bit of heterodoxy. When we were faced with these situations, while I hid in a corner, Mr. Arius would step forward and challenge the position. He usually won, and there were some hard-fought battles. <clears throat> I particularly remember one occasion when we were challenged to name one Catholic dogma that was not ambiguous and obscure. Mr. Arius immediately replied, there are seven sacraments. <laughs> I don't think a more perfect answer could have been given than that one. Dr. Arias holds two bachelor degrees from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, one in philosophy and one in theology. It was after acquiring these degrees in 1998 that he applied to Thomas Aquinas College to pursue a third bachelor's degree, particularly because he was impressed with the character of discipleship to St. Thomas that characterizes the school. He had spent only one, he one year here, however, when he and his wife, Jenea, decided to get married. So he returned to Loyola Marymount and finished up an MA in theology while Jenea was finishing her, her senior year at TAC. After that, he received an MA in philosophy at the Center for Thomistic Studies in Houston in 2003 
and his PhD in philosophy in 2012. In 2005, he became a member of the Thomas Aquinas College teaching faculty. This has been kind of a strange aspect of our, relation, our relationship over the years. <coughs> uh, he went down uh, to the program in Houston at the same time I did. And uh, at the time, I really felt like I was following him there. He was the one blazing the way. Um, he returned here in 2005. I returned in 2006. He got his PhD in 2012. I got mine in 2013. <laughs> so essentially, I've just been following him around everywhere he goes for the last 15 years. <clears throat> he and Jenea now live in Santa Paula with their 11 children, and they have been a great blessing to our community over the years. Dr. Arias has put a great deal of time into thinking about his theme for tonight, St. Thomas Aquinas on the Plurality of Forms. Uh, this was, is, uh, is a, a version of a paper that he gave at a meeting of the ACPA in Los Angeles um, a couple of years ago. And so I think we can look forward to a very edifying lecture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. David Arias. Thank you, thank you very much, Mr. Hattrop, for a very kind introduction. And I will get you back one of these years for that. The principal question which I intend to address tonight is this. How many forms are there in a man? Owing to the fact, however, that the name form has a number of meanings, it is possible to take this question in a number of ways. For example, since one of the meanings of form is shape, we might understand this question to be asking, how many shapes are there in a man? Taken thus, this question is relatively easy to answer. For while it is true that a given human being, such as Mr. Smith, can suffer certain changes in his overall shape by gaining or losing 50 pounds or by lifting weights, it is nonetheless plain that at any given moment he has only one overall shape. Further, while we may attend solely to the snubness in Mr. Smith's nose or to the curious roundness in his head, and in so doing, consider these to be different shapes, it is not difficult to see that here we are doing nothing more than dividing in our minds parts of an overall shape which is really undivided in Mr. Smith. So again, it appears that simply speaking, there is only one shape in a man at any given moment. But the name form is not trapped in the fourth species of quality, for there is another more general meaning of this name which is inclusive of other kinds of qualities as well. By way of illustration, when we speak of Mr. Smith's whiteness, heaviness, health, and justice as forms, we have this more general meaning in mind. In addition, this more general meaning of the name even includes within its universality accidents which are other than qualities. For we can speak of Mr. Smith's dimensive quantity and his fatherhood as forms that belong to him. If we are pressed to articulate what we, meet, what we have in mind when we say form of all these different accidents in Mr. Smith, we can answer that here form means that by which something is such or that by which a substance is in a certain respect. If we have this meaning of form in mind when we think of the question, how many forms are there in a man, then again the answer to this question is straightforward. For since we see right away that all of the aforesaid accidents can exist in Mr. Smith at the same time, 
And moreover, since we see that some of these presuppose others, just as his whiteness depends on his quantity, it is clear that with this more general meaning in mind, we must say that there are indeed many forms in a man at any given time. So depending on our meaning of the name form, we may respond to the question that we began with, either with the answer one or with the answer many. Yet, in addition to the meanings of form just mentioned, the perennial philosophy teaches that one of the intrinsic principles and causes of natural substances, such as men, merits the general name form and the more specific name substantial form. Accordingly, we can answer our question, we, sorry, accordingly we can understand our question, how many forms are there in a man to mean how many substantial forms are there in a man? And it is precisely this understanding of the question that I will attempt to address tonight. To inquire into the number of substantial forms present in a man is at once more worth, a more worthwhile pursuit and a more difficult one than to inquire into how many shapes or accidents there are in a man. It is more worthwhile since it is an inquiry which looks into the principles which constitute the very essence of man. As such, this inquiry goes well beyond the accidental order. This inquiry is also more difficult since, on the one hand, it must be settled by demonstrative arguments which have to do with the nature of man taken absolutely, and since, on the other hand, there are a host of impediments to our answering this question correctly, some of which stem from our intellectual customs and some of which stem from things themselves. In what follows, I will defend as true St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching that the essence of man cannot have more than one substantial form in it as a composing part, and thus that every man under the sun has only one substantial form in him. To this end, this essay has four main parts. First, I will briefly review what a substantial form is and distinguish it from accidental form. Second, I shall, off, I, I shall set forth a number of arguments, all of them drawn from what we study here at the college, which might incline us to think that there must be many substantial forms in a man. Third, I shall present one of the arguments whereby the angelic doctor demonstrates that there is only one substantial form in a man. And fourth, I will come back to the objections raised against St. Thomas's position and try to resolve them. Thereafter, I will conclude by offering some very brief reflections on a certain plurality of forms which can aid us in understanding the ultimate importance of this topic, which we will be thinking about this evening. So part one, two kinds of form. No adult human being who is in full possession of his natural faculties can fail to understand that change is something real, Parmenides, Melissus, and Zeno notwithstanding. Additionally, None of us can fail to distinguish, at least in some confused way, between certain general kinds of change. To help us put our minds on two of the general kinds of change that we are all familiar with, let us recall the scene from the Odyssey, wherein Odysseus, having arrived home disguised as a beggar, is accosted by the real beggar, Iris. Once it becomes clear to Odysseus that this confrontation is destined to end in blows, the man of many ways deliberates about precisely how much damage to inflict on his opponent. Quote, at that time, much enduring great Odysseus pondered whether to hit him so that the life would go out of him as he went down, or only to stretch him out by hitting him lightly. <laughs> and in the division of his heart, this way seemed best to him, to hit him lightly, so that the Achaeans would not be suspicious. Close quote. <laughs> 
Here, here we see Odysseus deliberating about whether he should induce a substantial change in his opponent or merely an accidental change. <laughs> the, the former would entail Iris's transformation into, the, into a corpse, while the latter would only entail Iris's temporary incapacitation for one reason or another. Notice, too, that each of these changes deliberated about is in some way twofold, for the corpse of Iris cannot come to be without the man Iris ceasing to be. Likewise, Iris's face cannot come to be shaped in a new way, as in fact happens in the story, without simultaneously ceasing to have its old shape. Notice here that we have just distinguished two kinds of becoming or coming to be. Let us briefly think about them in order to see what they have in common as well as to see some ways in which they differ. At this point, I'm going to change the examples so that we can all have our minds on things that are at once more helpful and more edifying. As our example of becoming in the accidental order, which I shall hereafter term accidental becoming, let us imagine a cube of clay by being rolled, which by being rolled on a flat surface becomes a clay sphere. And we'll take as our example of becoming in the order of substance, what I will hereafter call substantial becoming, the case of human reproductive cells becoming a man. Now, whenever a clay cube becomes a clay sphere, a substance, that is clay, changes from lacking the form of a sphere to having that same form in itself. But if we think about accidental becoming in general and bear in mind that the name form is predicable of accidents outside of the fourth species of quality, then it is not difficult to see that in every accidental becoming, some substance changes from lacking a certain form to having that same form in itself. The converse of this statement is true as well. That is, whenever some substance changes from lacking certain form, that is, an accident of some kind, to having that same form in itself, the change in question is an accidental becoming. In the case of human re reproductive cells becoming a man, we observe, as we did in the case of the clay, that there must be some subject or material which undergoes this change. In other words, when the reproductive cells become a man, some subject or material changes, from lacking what we'll call the form of a man to having that same form in itself. That there is some subject or material is manifest from the fact that human reproductive cells are required in order for a man to come to be. But what exactly is this subject or material which becomes a man? Given what we just established, we know that this subject cannot be an actually existing substance. For if it were, then the substantial becoming, which we are considering, would not be substantial in nature. Yet if the subject were nothing at all, then our substantial becoming would not be becoming, since every becoming is a change and every change requires a subject which changes. Now the only thing which stands midway between an actually existing substance and the non-being thereof is the ability or potential to be a substance. In order to save the reality of substantial becoming then, we must hold with Aristotle and St. Thomas that the subject of or material in this sort of becoming is nothing other than the ability or potential to be a substance. Now, as many of you know quite well, this strange creature that we are presently thinking about often goes by the name first matter because, as St. Thomas says, quote, there is no other matter before it, close quote. It is apparent then that when a man comes to be from human reproductive cells, first matter changes from lacking the form of a man to having that same form in itself. And generally, we can say that in every substantial becoming, first matter changes from lacking the form of a certain substance to having that same form in itself. At this point, one profound difference between accidental and substantial becoming is already manifest.
for the subject of the former is always some actually existing substance, while the subject of the latter is nothing other than the ability or potential to be a substance, also known as first matter. But a second profound difference goes along with this first one. We observed above that the form at which every accidental becoming terminates is an accident, or, or what we shall now call an accidental form. By contrast, the form at which every substantial becoming terminates cannot be an accident, since accidents can only be in substances, and as we just saw, the subject of substantial becoming is not a substance. Rather, the form which terminates a substantial becoming must be a more fundamental kind of formal principle than an accidental form. For it must be a formal principle whereby a substance is made to be a substance in act simply speaking. Now this kind of form, which together with first matter constitutes an actually existing substance, is what is traditionally known as a substantial form. St. Thomas summarizes well some of these points in the following text. Quote, But just as everything that is in potency can be called matter, so everything by which something has being, whatever being it be, whether substantial or accidental, can be called form. Thus, when a man is white in potency, he becomes white in act through whiteness, and a sperm, when it is a man in potency, becomes a man in act through the soul. And because form makes something to be an act, therefore form is called act. But that which makes substantial being to be an act is substantial form, and what makes accidental being an act is called accidental form. Close quote. In addition to reinforcing what we just established, this text also helps us to see more distinctly that each of the two kinds of form stand, stands to its respective subject or matter as act stands to passive ability or passive potency. Thus, we can say that as substantial form is to first matter, so is act to potency, and as accidental form is to substance, so is act to potency. At the same time, we should bear in mind that the act-potency composition of substantial form and first matter is a more fundamental composition and is in fact presupposed by the act-potency composition of any accident in the substance in which it inheres. Part 2. Three Arguments in Favor of Pluriformism Insofar as we conceive of man as the product of substantial becoming, we must likewise conceive of him as a substance composed of substantial form and first matter. Now as good scientists, we know that we are prohibited from multiplying causes without necessity. This admonition, of course, applies to every genus of cause. Thus, we must not think that there are many substantial forms in the essence of man unless there is enough evidence to force us to this conclusion. Yet as I shall attempt to show presently, there are many things that we study here at the college which, if thought about in certain ways, might incline us to think that pluriformism is in fact true, that is, that more than one substantial form is needed to constitute what man is. Here are three arguments in favor of pluriformism which take their beginnings from various things which you have studied or will study during your time here. Argument number one, pluriformism is implied by cell theory. If we think of certain holes that are put together from their parts, such as basketball teams and armies, what unites them or causes them to be undivided in themselves is a certain order existing amongst their parts. There is an order e existing amongst the players on the basketball team insofar as they play different positions, and all of the players are together ordered to their coaches, to their leader. 
In a similar way, the soldiers in the army are ordered both to each other and to their general. The kind of undividedness by which these sorts of entities are called one is commonly called the unity of order. It differs somewhat from what is called the unity of order and composition. Chairs and bicycles are two examples of things having this latter kind of unity. For in addition to their parts having a certain order to each other, these same parts are physically joined or interlocked somehow. Now, according to two of the pioneers of cell theory, namely Theodore Schwann and Rudolf Virchow, multicellular organisms such as men have either a unity of order or, at best, a unity of order and composition. Recall that Schwann puts before our minds this proportion. As a single bee is to a swarm of bees, so is a single cell to the whole organism of which it is a part. And Virchow has this to say, quote, the structural composition of a body of considerable size, a so-called individual, always represents a kind of social arrangement of parts, an arrangement of a social kind in which a number of individual existences are mutually dependent, close quote. Now it is important to see that these cell theorists do not hold to this conclusion without reason, for they observe through experimentation that when individual cells are separated from an organism such as a man, these cells have their own individual lives as well as certain activities that are proper to them. Put more formally, their argument seems to be as follows. Whatever belongs to each of the cells of an organism when separated from the organism also belongs to the same cells when they are part of the organism. But independent life belongs to each of the cells of an organism when separated from the organism. Thus, independent life belongs to each of the cells of an organism when they are part of an organism. Now, if this syllogism is sound, then since it is plain that the cells which compose an organism, such as a man, are themselves generable and corruptible, it is also true that each cell which composes an organism, such as a man, has its own substantial form. Thus, there must be in a man as many substantial forms as there are cells, and therefore it is evident that cell theory implies that pluriformism is true. Argument number two. Pluriformism is implied by the definition of the soul. From what was established in the first section, it seems to follow that every matter is really distinct from any form that is in it. Think back to the clay example. The clay is really distinct from both the form of a cube and the form of a sphere, since it is separable in term from each of them. But the same could be said regarding any other shape that can be in the clay. Hence, the clay is really distinct from any shape which is in it. And perhaps one could argue similarly regarding any other substance in the accidental forms which inhere in it. But the same is also true, clearly, of first matter and substantial form. From our considerations above, it is evident that first matter is really distinct both from the substantial forms of the human reproductive cells and from the substantial form of a man, since it is separable in turn from each of them. And first matter could similarly be shown to be distinct from any other substantial form that can be in it. Therefore, since substance and first matter are the only kinds of matter that there are, we can say universally that every matter is really distinct from any form which is in it. Now we learn from the first two chapters of Book 2 of Aristotle's work on the soul that the definition of soul in general is the first actuality of an, of an organized natural body having life potentially. Furthermore, we learn from these chapters not only that the soul is the substantial form of the organized natural body which it vivifies, but also that it stands to this same body as form stands to matter. Therefore, 
given what was just established above, it follows that the organized natural body, which is the matter in which of the soul, is really distinct from the substantial form which we call the soul. But if this is so, then just as clay has its nature as clay apart from the cubicalness or sphericalness that is in it, and just as first matter has its purely potential nature apart from any substantial form in it, so too the organized natural body, which is the subject or matter in which the soul inheres, has its nature as an organized natural body apart from the substantial form that is the soul. But if this is so, then there must be in man at least two substantial forms, one which is his soul, and one whereby his body is an organized natural body. Therefore, the definition of the soul implies that pluriformism is true. Argument number three. Pluriformism is implied by the coming to be of a man. If there is only one substantial form in man, then whenever a man comes to be from human reproductive cells, first matter must be stripped of every form in it in order that the human substantial form may be introduced immediately into first matter. This consequence of St. Thomas's teaching on substantial form is commonly referred to by the great Thomistic commentators as the resolutio seo denudatio omnis forme usque ad materiam primum. That is, the resolution or stripping of every form all the way to first matter. Further, St. Thomas himself recognizes that this is a consequence of his teaching on substantial form, for he writes, quote, I say that with the coming of the human soul, the substantial form that was in the matter beforehand is destroyed. Otherwise, generation would be without the corruption of another, which is impossible. And the accidental forms which were in matter beforehand, disposing it to the reception of the soul, are indeed corrupted, not per se, but per accidents, with the corruption of their subject." Close quote. However, it is manifestly contrary both to our sense experience and to what we know by reason that such a resolution of every form takes place when human reproductive cells become a man. To see that such a resolution of form is contrary to our sense experience, let us recall the searchant lab that most of us here have done, wherein we witnessed under a microscope the unification of searchant reproductive cells and perhaps the first cell division as well. Now, assuming that the searchant reproductive cells become a little searchant at some point before the first cell division, none of you, I dare say, will claim that during this time you witnessed any resolutio usque ad materiam primum. On the contrary, Assuming you witnessed anything at all, many of you were probably struck by how much remains constant during the transition from the unfertilized egg stage to the zygote stage. Indeed, the same basic bodily dimensions and structure ma seem manifestly to appear dure from the one stage to the next. Thus, it seems plain to the senses that the searchant substantial form must inform a subject or matter which is already formed by some other substantial form or forms. But the same case from sense experience could be made regarding a man's coming to be from human reproductive cells. Thus, it seems that in man as well, there must be a plurality of substantial forms. In addition, it is also contrary to reason that the aforesaid resolution should take place when the substantial form of a man is introduced into first matter. For let it be that such a resolution of every form does take place. From this, it follows that the substantial form of a man is introduced into first matter despoiled of every form. But as St. Thomas explicitly teaches, first matter considered in this way, quote, has itself indifferently to all forms, close quote. 
As a result, when the substantial forms of the human reproductive cells are expelled from first matter, there is no more reason why the substantial form of a man should be introduced into first matter than the substantial form of a horse or of an oak tree. Yet this consequence is clearly absurd. Thus, we must reject the claim that a resolutio usque ad materium primum takes place whenever human reproductive cells become a man. But if no such resolution takes place, then the substantial form of a man informs a subject or matter already formed by some other substantial form or forms. Therefore, the coming to be of man implies that pluriformism is true. Now, don't believe any of that stuff I just said, okay? Okay. Part three. St. Thomas Aquinas is teaching on the unicity of man's substantial form. In this section, I shall present one of the many arguments whereby St. Thomas demonstrates that there cannot be more than one substantial form in a man. Thereafter, I shall attempt to explain and defend as true some of the premises that might seem somewhat questionable to us. The argument I would like to focus on is from Book 2, Chapter 58 of the Summa Contra Gentiles, and it runs thus. Quote, Something has being and unity from the same principle, for one follows being. Since, therefore, each thing has its being from form, it will also have its unity from form. Thus, if many souls are posited in man as diverse forms, man will not be one being, but many beings. Nor will an order of forms be enough to bring about the unity of man. For to be one according to order is not to be one simply speaking, since the unity of order is the least of unities. Close quote. Now, in order to make completely explicit some of the statements that St. Thomas has left implicit here, I believe it is possible to reformulate this argument or series of arguments as follows. And here it goes. Whatever is a principle of being is also a principle of unity, for one follows being. But substantial form is a principle of being. Hence, substantial form is also a principle of unity. So, whatever has many substantial forms in itself has many principles of being and of unity in itself. But whatever has many principles of being and of unity in itself is not one being, but many beings. Hence, whatever has many substantial forms in itself is not one being, but many beings. Thus, if a man has many substantial forms in himself, he is not one being, but many beings. But man is one being. Therefore, man does not have many substantial forms in himself. After arriving at this conclusion, it seems to me that St. Thomas brings up an implicit objection and then responds to it. The objection seems to go something like this. If we posit that the many substantial forms in man are ordered, for example, such that one is subordinated to another, then man would, would be one being insofar as he would have the unity of order within himself. In response to, the, to this, St. Thomas points out that this is insufficient to account for the unity proper to man. For whatever merely has the unity of order, such as a basketball team, has the least sort of unity, whereas man is one, simply speaking. Now, it seems to me that there are two premises in this reformulated version of St. Thomas's argument which in particular merit our attention. The first is the claim that whatever has many substantial forms in itself is not one being but many beings. And the second is the statement that man is one being. The first of these premises might not seem to be necessarily true. 
For just as one might have a thousand thin fibers, each of which is insufficient for pulling a car, but all of which united together in one strong rope constitute something which is able to pull a car, so too it seems conceivable for there to be many for there to be many very imperfect substantial forms in a thing which could come together in their causality to jointly constitute one complete and perfect principle of the being and unity in the thing in question. Now, if this is a real possibility, then perhaps one could posit a plurality of substantial forms in man without the unhappy consequence of him becoming a bundle of beings accidentally united to each other. While this objection might initially seem plausible, it ultimately fails to understand what the name substantial form means when it is used in the aforesaid premise. In the following text, St. Thomas himself helps us to understand more distinctly the nature of the principle which the name substantial form signifies. Quote, substantial form differs from accidental form in this. A substantial form makes a this something to be simply, but an accidental form comes to what already is a this something and makes it to be such or how much, or having itself somehow. If, therefore, there were many substantial forms of one and the same thing, either the first of these would make of this something or not. If it does not make of this something, then it is not a substantial form. But if it does make of this something, then all of the consequent forms will come to what already is of this something. Thus, none of the consequent forms will be a substantial form, but rather all will be accidental forms." Close quote. From this we see that every substantial form, no matter how lowly or imperfect, is as such a formal principle whereby a this something has substantial being. Put differently, every substantial form is of itself sufficient when united to first matter to constitute some essence or nature through which something subsists. But given this understanding of substantial form, it must be true that whatever has many substantial forms in itself is not one being, but many beings, since whatever has two or more substantial forms in itself also has two or more this-somethings in itself, each of which subsists through its own distinct essence or nature. Thus the above objection fails. Now the second premise from St. Thomas's demonstration, which merits our attention, holds that man is one being as opposed to many beings. Perhaps this premise, more than any of the others, appears questionable, if not downright false. For haven't the biologists, such as the cell theorists mentioned above, conclusively shown that man is nothing more than a swarm of living substances that we commonly call cells? Or worse, haven't the physicists conclusively shown that man is nothing more than a swarm of subatomic particles, kind of like a bundle of billions of microscopic fireflies, rushing about at great speeds in the darkness of empty space. Despite what some think the biologists and physicists have established, I maintain that we can know with certitude that man is one being and not many beings. In order to help defend this claim, I shall enlist the help of Charles de Conink, a disciple of St. Thomas well known to all of us. In the lifeless world of biology and, and other essays as well, de Conink ma makes the all-important point that we would be incapable of distinguishing the living from the non-living were, were it not for our reflective awareness of ourselves as beings that touch, taste, smell, see, move ourselves from here to there, and so on. But the very same point must be made as regards our ability to, to distinguish a genuine individual substance from a multitude of substances having a, a unity of composition and or order. 
In other words, it is through my reflective awareness of myself as a subsistent being who, despite having many different kinds of parts, am undivided in myself and divided off from other things around me, that I am able to know with certitude that each of you sitting before me is an individual substance and not merely a huge pile of swarming cells or worse, a massive swarm of lifeless subatomic particles. In the following text, De Conning points out that it is in large part through our most basic yet most certain sense, namely that of touch, that, man, that each man experiences his undividedness in himself and division from other things. Quote, touch is the sense of substance. I do not mean by this that substance is per se sensible, but if there is a sense by which we feel ourselves within ourselves and distinct from other things about us, surely it is the sense of touch. I begin, I begin down there and end up here. It is because of touch that I feel my hand belongs to me. Of the parts of myself that I could merely see, I cannot feel with equal certitude that they belong to me, though I am confident that they may be quite essential. Close quote. Further, de Konink has this to say regarding how every man comes to recognize in his neighbor a unitary being like himself. Quote, I am conscious of my vital activities. I think, I will, I sense, I raise my arm, I speak, I walk, etc. These activities are mine. I am the principal. But these activities involve objectively observable signs which I connect directly with the activities. But when I find elsewhere similar signs quite independent of the observable signs of my own activities, I attribute them, for they are signs, to a life other than mine, to another subject." Close quote. Now, if it is so easy to know that every man is one being and not many beings, why should anyone, especially scientists, fail to grant what is evident from experience? A brief, partial answer is simply that some students of nature have some bad intellectual habits or customs, which inhibit them from listening to what nature wants to teach them. Some, for example, are in the habit of attending more to certain imaginary models of natural things than to natural things themselves. Some as well habitually fail to see that our reflective awareness of ourselves and of our operations puts us in contact with real objects, just as much as do our sensations of objects outside of us. Along these same lines, Mr. Marcus Berquist, one of the late founders of the college, has the following comment, quote, the imagination can only represent a complex explicitly as an actually divided multitude and cannot at once also represent it, if indeed it ever can, as a single being with its own unique integrity. To the extent then that the naturalist resolves his arguments to the picture in his imagination, he can never regard the composite as anything other than an arrangement of distinct entities. But if one looks back beyond these imaginary representations and consults the direct experiences which stand at the beginning of natural philosophy, quite a different reality comes into view. We then see that the very concept of individuality arises from our internal experience of unity. In ordinary usage, an individual means an individual man. This experience does not arise in spite of the distinction and spatial separation of our bodily parts, but in our very experience, that is, our sensation, of these bodily parts. For they are perceived as parts as we experience various passions within them. And this internal experience of them as parts fits with our external experience that they come to be as parts. There is a perfect harmony between what one experiences in himself, sorry, in oneself, 
and in others by signs, and what one observes in the coming to be and passing away of others." Close quote. Now in claiming here that the cell theorists and others like them are laboring under some bad intellectual customs, I am in no way denying that the biologists, physicists, and other experimental scientists have many worthwhile things to say about the kind of heterogeneous whole that man is. Quite the contrary. For despite the great certitude that we all have of our own unity and that of our fellow men thanks to our common experience, this same experience also leaves us in profound ignorance about many details of the heterogeneity of our own bodies. In addition, although every man sees quite readily that his stomach is in him the way a part is in a whole, while his dinner is in his stomach the way a thing is in a place, no man would ever know, were it not for the experimental sciences, about the many different kinds of microscopic living beings that make their home in him. As one Stanford University microbiologist recently put it, quote, each of us is both an organism and a densely populated ecosystem, with habitats harboring species as different from one another as the animals in a jungle and a desert. Even the resident microbes in the gum pockets of your teeth can vary greatly, close quote. Makes you want to buy some Listerine. <laughs> My main point here then is this. Just as we know for sure that the principle every whole is greater than its part can only be supported by and never falsified by discoveries that are yet to be made about the constitution of bodies in the Alpha Centauri system, so too we know for sure that every genuine discovery of the experimental sciences can only verify and never falsify those things that are truly given to us from our common experience. Such as our, our, such as our understanding that every man is one being and not many beings. Returning now to St. Thomas's argument from the Summa Contra Gentiles, we have seen that the premise, whatever has many substantial forms in itself is not one being, but many beings is true. But from this it follows that if man has many substantial forms in himself, then he is not one being, but many beings. But as we just observed, it is manifest that the other premise, man is one being is also true. Therefore, St. Thomas's conclusion that, it, that man does not have many substantial forms in himself must be true. Having arrived at this point, we should briefly note that our understanding of what man's substantial form effects in him has, has increased considerably. For before, we spoke of man's substantial form as that formal principle in him whereby he is a substance in act. But knowing now that there is and can be only one substantial form in man, we must maintain with St. Thomas that, quote, through the substantial form, which is the human form, this individual is not only a man, but also an animal, a living thing, a body, a substance, and a being. And thus, no other substantial form in this man precedes the human soul, and consequently, neither does any accident. For then, it would be necessary to say that matter is perfected by an accidental form before a substantial form, which is impossible since every accident is founded in substance." Close quote. Part four, replies to the arguments in favor of pluriformism. Number one, reply to the objection from cell theory. You will recall that Schwann and Virchow inferred the conclusion that organisms such as men are merely aggregates of many independently living cells from the fact that these same cells manifest independent lives when they are separated from the said organism. But this is no necessary inference. For if a man with the proper skill and tools were to derive 
50 oak and 2 by 4s from the large oak tree in front of the chapel, none of us would dare conclude that there were 50 distinct 2 by 4s actually existing in the oak tree prior to their removal. Rather, since we all naturally judge the oak tree to be one, one being, we also all naturally think that the said 2 by 4s are only potentially present in the oak tree prior to it being divided up into them. Now what applies to the oak tree applies a fortiori to the case of man. For we saw above that every man is one being from head to toe, and that there is only one formal principle in every man, by which he is both his substantial and specific being. Adding to this, the angelic doctor teaches, quote, substantial form is not only the perfection of the whole body, but also every part of the body. For since the whole body consists of its parts, the form of the whole body, which does not give being to the individual parts, is a form which is composition and order, and is the form, as is the form of a house, but such a form is accidental." Close quote. Thus we must maintain that prior to its separation from him, every cell in a man is one in being with him, and has both its substantial and specific being from his single substantial form, just as do his macroscopic parts, such as his heart, lungs, and hands. From this we readily see that whenever a cell is separated from a man, it thereby becomes its own substance, and hence acquires its own substantial form. Now, unlike the way in which the two by fours potentially exist in the oak tree, the living substances which we call separated human cells and their corresponding substantial forms exist in a man, as St. Thomas has it, in potentia propinqua actui, that is, in potency close to act or near to act, and it is for this reason that a fewer number of steps are needed to separate cells from a man than to derive two by fours from our beloved oak tree. But be that as it may, these remarks suffice to show that the actual experimental findings of self-theory in no way imply pluriformism. Number two, reply to the objection from the definition of the soul. From the above, it is clear that, if, that it is through man's substantial form uniting with first matter that man's being is constituted. This effect of the union of man's two substantial principles is one in reality. Nonetheless, the same effect, namely man's being, is often divided by the, by the mind into diverse levels of substantial perfection, that is, into being substance, being body, being alive, being sentient, and being rational. Accordingly, man's one substantial form can be viewed either as the formal principle, which gives man's being to the composite, or as the formal principle, which gives many diverse levels of substantial perfection to the composite in a certain order. Considering man's substantial form in the second way, St. Thomas writes, quote, in a certain way, one in the same form, insofar as it constitutes matter in act at a lower level, is between matter and itself, insofar as it constitutes matter in act at a higher level, close quote. Now, if something similar to this can be said about every substantial form which can rightfully bear the name soul, then St. Thomas's teaching enables us to make the following two points about how to understand the definition of soul. First, when we state that the soul is the first actuality of an organized natural body having life potentially, we must hold not only that the soul is the principle of certain vital operations, such as seeing, hearing, growing, and the like, to which it stands as first actuality to second actuality, but also that it is the one substantial form through which its proper matter is a natural body, is organized, and is capable of life. 
Second, the definitions of actualities and forms admit of two kinds. Sometimes these definitions contain the subject of the actuality or form, but the subject is understood as unformed by the actuality or form being defined. Examples of this would be when we say that motion is the act of the potential as such, or when we say that heat is the act of what is able to be hot. Other times, definitions of these things contain the subject of the actuality or form, but the subject is understood as already formed in some way by the actuality or form being defined. In this way, we sometimes de define motion as the act of the mobile, or heat as the act of the hot body. With this second way of defining a form in mind, we can say not only that it is through heat that the hot body is hot, but also that it is through the soul that the organized natural body, having life potentially, is such. Accordingly, the second objection in favor of pluriformism does not make its case, since it fails to understand that one and the same substantial form can be conceived of as giving diverse levels of substantial perfection to first matter in such a way that each lower level is understood to be material with respect to the one directly above it. And thus, the proper matter or subject in which the soul inheres has its formation from the substantial form, which is none other than the soul itself. Number three, reply to the objection from the coming to be of a man. This objection denied that a resolution of every form all the way to first matter takes place whenever a man comes to be, on the grounds that such a resolution is contrary both to our sense experience and to reason. Regarding the former, you will recall that the objector noted that during in vitro fertilization, the unfertilized egg and zygote after fertilization have perceptibly the same basic bodily dimensions and structure. Herein, however, lies an equivocation which the objector himself does not perceive. To make this clear, let us look to the other end of life. If a Russian videographer were to videotape the death of Ivan Ilyich, he would tell us that Ivan and his corpse immediately after death have perceptibly the same basic bodily dimensions and structure. But then a most important question arises. Are Ivan's dimensions and shape numerically the same or only specifically the same with those of his corpse. Clearly, they cannot be numerically the same, since numerically distinct substances have numerically distinct accidents, and Ivan and his corpse are numerically distinct substances. Just as Mr. Smith, just as Mr. Smith's paleness must differ in number from Mrs. Smith's paleness, even if their distinct palenesses have exactly the same hue, so too with Ivan's accidents and those of his corpse. Accordingly, if the transformation of the unfertilized egg into the zygote is really a substantial becoming, as the objector himself grants, then we must maintain that the bodily dimensions and the structure of the substance which ceases to be truly differ in number from those of the substance which comes to be. For the dimensions and structure of the unfertilized egg flow from its substantial form, just as those of the zygote flow from its diverse substantial form. Further, just as no violence is done to what we are given in sense experience, when we recognize that Ivan's accidents and those of his corpse are only specifically the same, the same is true of this other case as well. Indeed, it should not surprise us that here the understanding, informed by sense experience, grasps a difference which the senses by themselves are unable to detect. Turning to the second part of the objection, there is nothing against reason in positing on the one hand, that the substantial form of a man is introduced into first matter 
despoiled of every form, and on the other hand, that the, that first matter thus conceived can be said to be more receptive of one substantial form than another. To make this clear, two points will have to suffice for now. The first point comes from Francis Sylvester of Ferrara. This disciple of St. Thomas notes that when we think about the instant in which the human substantial form is introduced into first matter, it is easy for us to be led astray by our imaginations. For we may easily imagine that in one instant, first matter is stripped of the substantial forms of the human reproductive cells, and that in the very next instant, first matter receives the substantial form of a man. But if we imagine things thus, we commit at least two errors. First, we posit that one instant or now of time can be contiguous with another, which is impossible. Second, we posit that first matter can exist at least for an instant without a substantial form, but this too is impossible. In contrast to this, then, we must hold that it is in the very same instant the man's substantial form is introduced into first matter and that the forms of the human reproductive cells are expelled from first matter. Thus, one in the same instant is both the first instant of the being of the man and the first instant of the non-being of the human reproductive cells. Second, we can add to this by noting with various disciples of St. Thomas that it is one thing to speak of first matter stripped of every form absolutely and quite another to speak of first matter in the very instant in which the human substantial form is introduced into it as despoiled of every form that was in it during the time prior to that instant. When St. Thomas states that first matter stripped of every form, quote, has itself indifferently to all forms, close quote, he is speaking only of the former and not the latter. For to conceive a first matter stripped of every form absolutely is to leave out of one's consideration everything except the bare essence of first matter. And so first matter conceived of in this way is no more disposed to receive the substantial form of a man than the substantial form of a horse or of an oak tree. On the contrary, to conceive a first matter in the very instant in which the human substantial form is introduced into it as despoiled of every form that was in it during the time prior to that instant is to conceive a first matter insofar as it is fully disposed both by some natural agency and by the substantial form, sorry, and by the human substantial form itself to receive a level of substantial perfection which it did not have prior to this instant. Whence, immediately after stating that first matter stripped of every form has itself indifferently to all forms, the angelic doctor immediately adds, quote, but first matter is determined to specific forms through the power of the moving cause, close quote. And so, from the foregoing, we see that there is nothing contrary either to our sense experience or to reason in maintaining that the substantial becoming of a man involves a resolutio omnis forme usque ad materiam primum. Although much more could be said in response to each of these objections, it seems to me that what has, that what has been said is sufficient to show that none of these objections, as stated, succeeds in showing that pluriformism is in fact true. Rather, the fact that St. Thomas is teaching on substantial form is rich enough to enable us to undo all of these objections is a further sign of the truth of this teaching. Conclusion, another plurality of forms. At the outset of this lecture, we observe that the name form is said first of accidents and as only later said of that intrinsic principle and cause which together with first matter constitutes the what it was to be of material substances.
But this is not the end of the trajectory of the name form. For as St. Thomas makes clear, this name can also be said of those substances which have no matter in themselves and which can never be in matter the way man's form can be. These separated substances are none other, are none other than the angels. Lastly, form can even be said of the uncreated one, that is God himself. And it is through understanding what we have been thinking about tonight in light of this, in light of this plurality of forms, that is, in light of the angels subordinated to God, that we can see something of the ultimate importance of the unicity of man's substantial form. It is obvious to all of us that the natural world in which we live is hierarchically ordered. But what is not so obvious is that this hierarchy of material or natural substances that we are a part of depends on a causally prior hierarchy of forms. Under the glorious eternal one in whom there is no distinction between form and existence, there live the unspeakably luminous nine choirs of angelic forms. Under them, one then finds the world of material substances. Brute animals, because of their substantial forms, are sentient, alive, and subsistent. The plants, in turn, because of their forms, are alive and subsistent. Under the plants, we encounter the non-living bodies. Through their substantial forms, they subsist. And it is in this realm that one finds the elements, the lowliest of material substances. Below the elements, there remains only first matter, which, considered in itself, has no form at all. But even here, there is some divine likeness. For as St. Thomas puts it, quote, matter is its own passive potency, just as God is his own active power. Now between the brute animals and the angels stands man. As we have seen tonight, it is because of his one substantial form that man is at once intelligent, sentient, alive, and subsistent. So special is man's substantial form that in the words of St. Thomas, it is, quote, said to be like a certain horizon and boundary of corporeal things and incorporeal things, insofar as it is an incorporeal substance, which is also the form of a body, close quote. Accordingly, it is through this, this one substantial form in man, that is the intellectual or rational soul, that both the hierarchy of forms and the hierarchy of material or natural substances find their respective completions. For as the lowliest of incorporeal substances, the intellectual soul is the principle by which the humblest of knowers understands reality. At the same time, as the highest of all substantial forms, the intellectual soul's union with matter constitutes a material substance that is more noble than all other material substances. As a result, if it were not for the unicity of man's substantial form, both the hierarchy of forms and the hierarchy of material substances would remain fundamentally incomplete. I end here with the words of the psalmist whose meditation on man's nature leads him to glorify the one true God, creator of all. When I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you arranged, what is man that you keep him in mind, mortal man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little less than a god. With glory and honor you crowned him, gave him power over the works of your hand, put all things under his feet. All of them, sheep and cattle, yes, even the savage beasts, birds of the air and fish that make their way through the waters. How great is your name, O Lord our God, through all the earth. Thank you for your attention tonight.